Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Anna DeVere Smith, actor and playwright, Pulitzer Prize finalist, a two-time Tony Award nominee, a MacArthur Genius Grant honoree, and the recipient of the 2012 National Humanities Medal. She is known not only for her performances on popular TV series such as The West Wing and Blackish, and her roles in movies such as Philadelphia and The Human Stain, but also for extraordinary one-woman shows both on and off Broadway, as well as her work in stage plays. In the 90s, she created a distinctive genre of theater in which she interviews scores of individuals and then transforms the transcripts into dramatic and profound storytelling focused on race, social justice, and women. It has been said that she is not just a mirror of the people she portrays, but a magnifying glass on the human condition. And it is through these works that move us toward understanding, empathy, change, and a more equitable future for all of us. Today, we not only discuss her background, but her plays, Notes from the Field, which shed light on the school-to-prison pipeline, as well as her play, recently published in The Atlantic, called The Ghosts of Slavery, which is only the second play that The Atlantic magazine has ever published in its history. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Well, it's nice to see you again since our hiatus, I guess, since the uh, pandemic. Great to see you. Yes, it's uh, nice reconnecting and seeing you again. And uh, actually, I was just uh, looking at uh, Atlantic Magazine with the Ghost of Slavery. Oh, yeah. And uh, maybe we can just start there, but I'll work backwards from there. So tell me. Okay. Well, um, I've been working in the, since for a while, really since 2012, uh, particularly at juvenile, vulnerable juveniles in America. And I wrote a play called Notes from the Field about the school to prison pipeline and started working on it well before a lot of people knew about that, which is just the statistics that came from the Justice Department to say that black and brown kids get expelled from school uh, more than white kids, and those expulsions can predict lives in the criminal justice system. And so that I worked on for some time. It became a play, and it became a film uh, for HBO. And when I finished it, I thought to myself, you know, when people think about kids who are vulnerable, we automatically think about boys, black and brown boys. And when I was curious, well, what's going on with girls? And so I started to focus on that and wanted to also look at the history. Like, how did we get to the juvenile justice system and the welfare, child welfare system that we have right now? Where did that come from? And um, the Atlantic hired me to do something and I, you know, wanted me to write for them. So I decided I would focus on that. And I, you know, kind of went up and down the 20th century like a xylophone. But I landed on a historical fact that I didn't know about, about Maryland, the town that, you know, I'm from Maryland. And I had always thought that Maryland was a free state. Well, it, w- it did not secede, but it did have many slaves. It had plenty of slaves. Some people were free, some people were slaves. And it's because uh, I think Lincoln made a deal, but you know, your historians would have to correct this. He kind of turned the other way about slavery, but he needed Maryland not to secede because uh, it's so close to Washington, D.C. So we did not free the slaves in Maryland with the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, And it was a great big convention that went on for months. And out of it was the decision to free the slaves in Maryland. But the day after that, the day after that, they used an old law, apprenticeship law, and gathered the children back and brought them back to the plantation with the girls having to stay there until they were 18 and the boys 21 with this bogus idea of apprenticeship. And the, and the, the title of the play, This Ghost of Slavery, actually comes verbatim out of the 
the, the Constitutional Convention where one of the people who was an abolitionist said, you know, this ghost of slavery, this is a ghost of slavery to try to pass this apprenticeship law. And um, so I, I just, I'm not a historian. I think I got a little bit intimidated about that uh, in terms of the Atlantic and decided to write a play. And I, I didn't even tell the editor it was going to be a play. I just sent it in. <laughs> and I'm just so grateful that he's a really cool guy called Scott Stossel. And he didn't, you know, he didn't say, what, what, what is this? You know, he was just like, wow, a play. And he actually fought uh, for 32 pages of the magazine. Um, Atlantic is 167 years old. They've only had one other play in all those years, 1930, a short play by Jean Cocteau. So for me, this whole experience has been, was informative, but it was also just a fantastic creative experience in outside of the theater, which is where I'm usually working. Wow. Well, uh, maybe we can go backwards about your life. Now, maybe you can tell me about your background growing up, I guess, Baltimore, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, everybody has a backstory. And uh, but one of the things I understand was that your mother was a social worker. No, she was a teacher. Teacher. But you ended up going to a Jewish school uh, uh, at some point, right? Uh, for for uh, junior high, not a Jewish school, but it was in, a, in an almost entirely Baltimore is very segregated in many ways. It was also very anti-Semitic as well as anti-everything that wasn't, you know, white, Christian. <laughs> and um, so, um, yeah, so at that time that I am so old, unfortunately, I have to admit that <laughs> when I was 10 years old is when they first started these spriddle sprinklings of uh, integrating the schools. And it wasn't like but formal busing, but I did have to take, I think, three buses uh, to get to school. Um, maybe two. And that was junior high where um, there were many Jewish kids and uh, many, many white Christians and many and some black kids. I went to high school, uh, which was a college preparatory high school, Western high school. Um, and my mother was a teacher, so she was sort of you know, in the educational community. And the word was, if you want your kid to have a good education, send them to a school where there's a lot of Jewish people. Jewish people believe in education. And because Baltimore was so anti-Semitic, the girls I went to high school with wouldn't have been able to go to the private schools in Baltimore. And so I, that, that, uh, that was of an advantage for me because, um, you know, they were really motivated and, uh, probably educated in many ways already, and they really are, were a part of me getting the lights to really turn on about education. Although, again, my mother was a teacher, all her friends were teachers, my aunts were teachers, I skipped a grade, but but really sort of becoming a active part of my own intellectual growth happened at that high school, which was integrated. Well, I, I, I think I read something, though, where you felt sort of separated uh, while you were in the middle school from the students, and there was definitely a hierarchy. And then high school, you sort of actually connected and thrived. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I think junior high is just bad anyway. I mean, I, later in life, like much later, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like 45, 46, 48, maybe 50 years old. And I ran into a, one of the black boys with then Negroes or colored people who I didn't know at the school, but he stood out because he was like one uh, black boy and like a whole group of Jewish kids. So the school was sort of, you know, seven, one, that section meant you were very smart and went all the way to 723, 723 oh, wow. were all black. You know, he was in seven, one. And, but years later when I met him, you know, he told me, you know, it was just awful that, that Garrison Junior High was just awful. And when, and I remember also it taught me something about the fact that not all white people, you know, were one clump, clump because the, the, the Gentile kids did not like the Jewish kids. And even among the Jewish kids, there was a sort of separation from the kids who were less assimilated. And so there were, I think that's what junior high school is even now. Uh, of any any composition, these 
I mean, these clusters, you have kids. Um, you yes, know yes. Oh, yeah. I hope it wasn't painful for them. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because my oldest, he uh, he was always independent in the sense of uh, demanding answers. And if he thought he was being BSed or they were not accurate, he would raise his hand and confront them. And that did not go over well <laughs> in multiple schools. So he went to a variety of different schools. And actually, what's so funny about that is that one of the schools he went to was one of these... Indian meditation, blah, blah, blah schools. And that, the one where I thought he would be work the best and get involved, it was actually the worst one he had ever been to, interestingly enough. And after that, he ended up going to public school and actually thrived. So here we spent years sitting at all these private schools, and it was at the public school where he actually ended up thriving. The younger one was fortunate in that he started a private school, which... Um, I guess the term would be woke, but it was a, it was a left-leaning school, one of these schools where no grades, because he's very focused, no grades, go around barefoot, play in the mud. And he thrived there, and he went there from, you know, preschool till eighth grade. So, you know, he grew up there, knew everybody, and that's a completely different situation. So it's an interesting uh, contrast. But, you know, school has a profound influence on uh, – on so many uh, yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. So as I understand it, uh, uh, though you initially wanted to be a psychiatrist. Yeah, I did. And, and you know, um, I, it's something I want to go back to, not not to be a psychiatrist, but um, I want to go back, at, you know, this real experience of writing this Ghost of Slavery probably has pricked my interest in my hometown. I haven't really written about it very much. Um, and to look at a place called Crownsville, where black people were sent, Hopkins did not admit uh, black psychiatric patients um, for most of my childhood. And black people were sent there and they would threaten us when we were little. And, oh. you know, if you had a tantrum or something, we're going to send you to Crownsville. And literally, this is one of those places where people were buried with numbers, not graves. So I want to learn more about that and learn about how that probably set the stage for any kinds of uh, reluctances or ambivalences that black people have uh, had around mental health. We're now in such a, you know, people wrote, use the word trauma, like use the word, use the word Coca-Cola, right? And, and therapy is present in everybody's life, I, I, I think. It, I don't know in the communities where people are speaking English as a second language, um, but it's everywhere. It's in schools. It's everywhere. So it's a very different day than when I was a kid. It was such a taboo to even speak about and that there was this one place for us. So I'm interested in that. And um, yeah, I might want to go take a deeper look. Well, you know, it's a sad thing, though, is, uh, you know, now so many people in all age groups, but certainly in the younger population, uh, are, you know, there's this epidemic of, uh, stress, anxiety, depression, loneliness, you know, the surgeon general, uh, uh, talks about that. Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Sure. yeah. Uh, uh, so it's interesting to, and maybe you can give your thoughts on this because, <clears throat> you know, years and years ago, uh, you know, people were typically born in a village and, uh, died in the village and, uh, but in the village, everybody knew them and supported them, and and they knew their strengths, their weaknesses. And in those environments, these kids didn't suffer from all of this anxiety. And now in the modern world, where you don't have that sort of support system, uh, so many people are uh, afraid of uh, admitting to any type of weakness or failing or that they're lonely or they're depressed or they're struggling. And I think this has uh, certainly contributed to this mental health crisis. Well, I had an opportunity with Victor Carrion at Stanford to be there for a semester as a visiting professor. And if you can imagine, this was 2016, I think, or 17. 17. I think we met in 2016. And it's amazing 
how, I mean, that what they were talking about, and Steve Edelsheim, I mean, they were talking about this, how they needed to have like a kind of a movement to make people more comfortable. And this quickly, I would say, again, it maybe it's just in the middle class, but it's a norm. Look, um, I'm sure it's no surprise to you. I spoke to, I think, the American, an association of colleges and universities. And up there with money, uh, one of the great problems or concerns is mental health among the students. Now, it could be that we're looking at this particular group of people, right, who Michael Sandel in his book, uh, Tyranny of Merit, would say are depressed, feel a lot of pressure because they feel they have to achieve so much in these types of high achieving environments. I mean, that could be that could be a part of it. But it's really it's very different. I mean, I'm. At NYU, I, I think I'm supposed to notify people if a whole lot of emotion is um, expressed. And uh, that's something I have to really kind of pick through because I teach performance, right? And um, Or along those lines, probably more relevant is the people who ask me after I perform, how do you take care of yourself? Uh, and in one case, it was how, how do you take care of yourself? How do you take care of the actors who perform your work? And how do you take care of the audience? And so this whole idea of the things that can happen in the theater that are quote unquote triggering. Now, I don't know, you tell me what the good news is. For me, the concerning news is for the theater to do its work, it needs to be a transgressive place. And what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's not that we shouldn't care about our audiences, but we should be on the outside. Do you know what I mean? And I think that you know, perhaps that desire and trigger warnings and stuff like that are, are, you know, not to section things off, but it's almost like that concern belongs in the field of psychiatry or psychology because we should, you know, we should be in that area where uh, we don't do reckless things, but that there's a different realm of expression. No, I, I, I see. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that making people uncomfortable or sort of having them to face the things that they've suppressed or been afraid of actually can be very therapeutic, especially in a theater environment, because you're observing, but you're not necessarily put on the direct spot. Exactly. And, you know, in a way, I you could also say to that that question that came from an audience member, I need to take care of the audience. You could also say, well, how do we keep ourselves from having bad dreams? You know, um, because we're, 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 when we're successful, we should be in that realm of like where, where, where dreams are, you know, it's not real what we do. Um, and you know, I guess just don't eat onions and not, nobody wants to have a nightmare. Uh, but that you could have a bad dream, and we're built to have them, right? And what a relief when you wake up and it was only a dream. Well, of course, the sad thing is when reality is a nightmare, right? <laughs> right? That's a... Well, that's true. That's really true. Yeah, and uh, uh, I know you're familiar with uh, the nature of baggage that people carry around, and I think actually in probably many ways – that baggage which influences individuals' choices as far as relationships or uh, how they act or interact. Uh, uh, you know, people carry these with them throughout their lives, and until they have enough self-awareness, they can't understand, you know, what why these things keep happening or the experience they're having. The uh, um, Tell me a little bit more, and I, of course, know some, but uh, uh, about this pipeline to prison the and how that evolved. And I know you talked about the girls, but how did you get there with that to start that conversation? Well, uh, I think you actually first met me when I had been doing my play, Let Me Down Easy, which was about healthcare. Yes. Uh, in fact, I had an opportunity to... Uh, meet lots of Stanford folks um, when, you know, Phil Pizzo was the, the dean and he was actually a character in the show. It's when I met 
No, I, I didn't meet Victor until until Notes in the Field. And actually, this was an odd situation where a philanthropist came to me and said, have you ever heard of the school to prison pipeline? And I said, no. And she said, well, I want you to come over to the foundation. I want you to learn about it. And she brought me over there. And there were about 20 people from around the country. I spent the better part of the day. And they were telling me about this school to prison pipeline. And I was just astonished, and particularly going back to my hometown, Baltimore, of a story about a kid in Baltimore who had peed in a water cooler, and they were going to take him to jail. Now, now because I've done 250 interviews around the country, um, yeah, I get it. I, I, I see how that could happen. And I'll never forget that I was on a television show called Nurse Jackie at the time. And I was just, I really, that, that story had stuck in my mind, I guess because, you know, my mother and all her friends just growing up and my whole life as a child was about the Baltimore Public Schools. And so I said to Eve Best, British actress who was in Nurse Jackie with me, I said, you know, I heard the most troubling and unusual story yesterday. I heard story about a kid in Baltimore who peed in a water cooler and they were going to take him to jail. And she said, oh, well, whatever happened to mischief? And it was just this very dynamic moment. So it's like, oh, I get it. So, you know, poor kids get pathologized. They get sent to juvie and rich kids get to have mischief. I mean, pretty much. I'm sure your son had friends in his, you know, muddy school where there was Plenty of mischief. I don't think anybody went to jail. Well, uh, that's an interesting point because, again, it shows you the nature of uh, the caste system in the United States. And right. certainly part of it is racial. Part of it is economic. And uh, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, you know, you see the wealthy class get off or, uh, as you said, uh, their troubles are just mischief. Uh, but if you're uh, a person of color or very poor, uh, you're a problem. And, and it seems as though what's sad is that the manner in which policing has evolved over the last few decades is it's no longer sort of this individual's part of the community. It's us against them. And, uh, and that's, I think, this militarization and making clearly biased assumptions about the other is a, a serious, serious problem. I have to say, I mean, I've never been comfortable around police officers. Um, and I, I don't recall if they were in our neighborhood when I was growing up or if they were black or they were white, but I, I never, I was never comfortable around them, you know? Um, yeah. I have a, a friend who's a black orthopedic surgeon and he, uh, He's terrified of the police. And he, uh, he uh, was driving home one day, and he drives a Mercedes. And, you know, of course, what is it, uh, uh, black while driving? Or something black. Right, 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 yeah. right. And, and he got the pulled over. The crime, the crime. Yeah, he gets pulled over. And he was telling me, literally, he was shaking so hard <laughs> because, you know, you— uh, never know what's going to happen. And, and these things could de-escalate. I mean, I'm sure you probably saw that situation where it showed a black man who uh, had his hands up and I think he dropped his gun, but then he reached down and, you know, like 10 officers just shot him with like 37 bullets wow. and killed him. Yeah. Then yeah, there yeah. was a guy who was carrying a rifle, a white guy, and the police officers talked to him for 20 or 30 minutes he finally laid his rifle down. They arrested him. They took him to Burger King before they took him to prison. <laughs> and you said, there, yeah, uh, uh, and it's just you can't even uh, imagine how uh, uh, sort of uh, you can get there. Well, George Floyd was a, a murder of George Floyd for us to see that um, was a revolution. And I wrote a play 30 years before that. Uh, because a white man named George Holiday happened to be out on his balcony testing out his brand new camera, which was probably, you know, 10 times the size of an, size right. of an iPhone. And he's the one who videoed the beating of Rodney King in, in L.A. And, and subsequent to that, when the four police officers walked off, uh, who had, the world saw the video. And we hadn't ever been exposed to that. 
So people who live in neighborhoods around, you know, a lot of black people with in, in under surveillance would have seen something like that, but most people never seen anything like it. So we couldn't imagine that these four cops would not go to jail and they did not and the city blew up. But it's interesting how we have to have that evidence for the world to believe in, right? And I wonder how that you think about that given your work in compassion is that what does it why does it take evidence, you know? visual evidence? Why isn't that the story itself, you know, uh, enough to cause people to go, oh my God, that's terrible. We have to do something about it. Well, I think that uh, uh, for many people, it's uh, much more comfortable to delude themselves uh, than it is to have to face reality, especially if your own situation is comfortable. Uh, I mean, uh, you look at all the different atrocities that occur and the reality is very few, if any, would occur if people would step up, right? Uh, most people are silent, which I think Martin Luther King said that, you know, uh, silence is as bad as the act itself, right? Yes. And he also famously said that riot is the voice of the unheard. Exactly. Like those, who, those who have been silent, those who are not heard, eventually, you know, there'll be a disruption. Well, I think since you and I have last conversed, you know, we see the rise of this uh, authoritarianism and, uh, in fact, sort of this uh, delusion of the masses on some level. Uh, and you were talking about, you know, how could they do that or they had to see it. But, you know, we're seeing things that in a normal society, that type of behavior would have resulted in instantaneous uh, resignation or uh, uh, separation from people. And now it's as almost we've allowed the most horrible base behavior of individuals uh, to be accepted. And also we've somehow created the elevation of a person with an opinion to speak to somebody who's an expert and made a sort of false equivalency between the two. I'm very, uh, what should I say? I guess because I'm a person who lives in the, the realm of why. Um, I just, Victor and I used to say that Stanford should have a center for the study of human beings. And now that AI is right in front of us as a reality, it's counterintuitive, but it's a place, Stanford is exactly the kind of place that should have a study for the Center for Human Beings and to understand so many things about us. Like this, you know, what is appealing about authoritarianism in this country that has been so dedicated to democracy for all of its flaws, nonetheless dedicated to it, and that it is really in danger right now. And also that we have so few younger people who are willing to step up and take the mantle of sort of official leadership or traditional leadership, you know, um, is also very, very disturbing. And I think that, I think the press, frankly, I think the media have a lot to do with it, that um, people are afraid, young people are afraid of, of being shamed, either in the big media or in social media. They don't want to be, they don't want to show up somehow. Um, it's very, very troubling. And, also, you know, we have a crisis in higher education. It's it's a tough, it's it's a time that um, needs a uh, something uh, the antithesis of it to be building. And I don't I don't know if you're seeing that at all from from where you sit from your perch. No, no, I I think that's exactly right. I I think there are a couple issues. Uh, one you touched on, but. Uh... And this relates to sort of mental health. Is uh, there's a, the younger population is terrified of being judged, and it's sort of. Uh, I had a conversation with Bob Waldinger. He wrote the uh, the book about happiness, the Harvard Longevity Study. Okay. And uh, but uh, uh, we we're talking about this study that demonstrated or that showed that fifty percent of High school students want to make money, uh, 
a significant percentage want to be influencers. And then the third ranked was um, uh, they wanted to be celebrities, which is an interesting phenomenon because it's not looking at outside of yourself. It's like, I want, I want, I want. And I think that's uh, part of the problem. How did we get there? I mean, I think my profession has uh, some of the some of the some of the problem starts with us because we are the ones who put these images out there. Of course, it's a two way street, right? Like the image doesn't become popular without the audience or the public longing for it and you know supporting it and and paying for it. But you're exactly right, and I, I found this with 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 the girls that I worked with. Um, a group of actually my high school, uh, Western High that I talked about before is now all 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 African American. And I did a summer performance lab in 2022. And when I went around and asked people what they wanted to do, they wanted to be entrepreneurs, they wanted to be famous, they wanted to be influencers. And one girl stood out because she said, I want to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> but she was the only one who and then I went back and visited her again this summer and talked to her and you know, and, and her ideas, you know, I, I really want to help adults. <laughs> you know, she said, because, you know, people are concerned about children. But she was talking about she can see the pressure her teachers are under. I mean, what a cool kid, right, who actually, and she's not soft or ooey-ooey. She's sort of very straightforward and stuff like that. But I was just really impressed that there that's so different from the masses. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's amazing. Well, you know, it is sort of interesting, this narrative that somehow showing compassion is weak, showing your emotions is weak, when in fact, I believe that that's actually a, a, a sign of strength and separating yourself from the masses. But again, uh, you look at this, uh, I think in uh, Western capitalist society, we have promoted a narrative uh, that success, which oftentimes translates into money, power, and position, uh, makes you happy. And people chase after that. And uh, and then, of course, as we all know, you climb the one peak and you're waiting for all this affirmation from others, but it doesn't last or it doesn't make you feel good. So you go after the next mountain you climb that one and you're standing there alone again and everybody's telling you how great you are, but it's having no impact on you and you keep doing this. And, uh, I think that's a very sad thing. And then I think that, you know, this influencer class, uh, sadly buy into this narrative that they have to appear perfect. And so they put on the makeup and they put on all these clothes and they use all these filters and they're promoting a narrative of perfection, which many of them actually are empty inside. And then you have, you have the people watching who uh, uh, try to strive for that, but it's impossible uh, to strive for that. And it's like this circle of uh, ever-increasing uh, depression, unhappiness, anxiety, and uh, disconnect. But at the same time, we have uh, another narrative of celebrities and other people in the public eye, the expectation that somebody will bring them down for some reason. So the two things are happening at once, right? I mean, because, you know, I get variety, you know, now it, it comes online and, you know, there's somebody's always in trouble, right? Somebody's always being disgraced. It's interesting. So if we go back to your whole small town idea, of course, those small towns also, we're not great for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. If you were different, forget it. Forget it. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't be different. You know? Um, so, and if you, or you had to have, you had to have, uh, I'm thinking about the book uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, which was a small town. But luckily there were spaces where people could be who didn't, didn't fit in. I mean, you then require... Again, these transgressive spaces or these underground spaces where you could be. And many people who are in theater will tell you that they're in theater because something there was something about them that was different, you know, something about them that was not acceptable. Now, there's also something about them that was applauded. You know, they could sing or they could dance, but often they were the odd people, too. No, I, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, 
the narrative uh, is almost a cliche now that somebody becomes successful in the theater, the arts, or uh, movies, et cetera, but they, they'll go through this whole narrative how nobody liked them, they were bullied, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the ugly it's, ducklings, all that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but maybe <laughs> it's the, the ugly ducklings succeed and tell the story, but there are tons of ugly ducklings who don't succeed and still have a sad story, unfortunately. Well, I mean, or now we have the term neurodiverse and, um, you know, there's this myth because the way we throw around the idea of the spectrum that you know, the people on the spectrum are geniuses or many of the geniuses in our myths. So, well, you know, he's on the spectrum. Uh, but not everybody who's on the spectrum is a genius no, or no. has resources or, ha- you know what I'm saying? So we do tend to make these generalizations, it's maybe inter- to understand something better, but we do. No, no. Well, I think that's the, the human condition, right? We have these biases that we don't look at. And until either we're forced to look at them or something motivates us to look at them, we don't appreciate them and we continue to have these biases. Uh, I actually, it's funny you mentioned neurodiverse. I spoke at this conference called One Young World. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, it's every year and it brings together activists, uh, entrepreneurs in the, you know, the 25 to 35 range. And, uh, and they have these different talks. So this year it was focused on mental health. So I gave a couple talks there, but I moderated a panel on sort of this idea of neurodiverse, but I think you're exactly right. And it's interesting because um, not only that experience, but I, I spoke to a group of 500 Facebook engineers. And it was interesting because uh, uh, many people assume that if you're neurodiverse, you're somehow disconnected from feelings. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, the reality is these people have very deep feelings. They just don't know how to communicate those feelings or sort of the normal interaction uh, with others regarding uh, their feelings. In fact, you know, this talk with these engineers, there was sort of a question and answer. And, uh, you know, I I was uh, not amazed, but I, I certainly, it opened my eyes to the fact that many of these people suffer quite deeply. Well, how do they articulate it? Well, they actually, (laughs) it wasn't with normal emotion in their voice. (laughs) No normal emotion. So called normal emotion. But you pay for being too emotional, right? I can't tell you how many interactions I have or meetings I have where I feel that I'm going to pay for being too uh, transparent, too expressive. Um, and, you know, even when I teach now, I worry that, you know, if I'm, if I'm too passionate about something, it could be mistaken as angry. Right. Um, well, especially for a black woman. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's the, right. the that's burden right. that's sitting there. Right. Uh, 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 but no, I think you're, you're exactly right because you know what, and I, I think this is a, again, almost a trope, you know, you see a man in a business and he uses profanity and he, you know, tells people his opinion and they go, he's a great leader. And then a woman does it and they go, well, she's a bitch. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, uh. But I, I'll tell you another story. I was giving a talk at Google with about 200 people in front of me and a half of them had their computers open. And this, my talk is being broadcast throughout all of Google. Right. There was a significant percentage who were looking at me on their computer. <laughs> well, you're right there in front of me. <laughs> Which I thought was just a very fascinating thing. It just seemed so strange. Well, I guess the computer is its own form of intimacy, you know, um, in an odd way. And I think Zoom, you know, my first. In 2020, I was very worried about teaching because we were going to teach on Zoom. And I'm teaching performance. How's that going to go? It was one, and I'm entering my 50th year of teaching. Um, It was one of the best experiences I ever had with teaching. 
because even though they were off in their own, first of all, they were in their dwelling spaces. So you learn more about them from seeing that. And they were able to use aspects of real space, which in a performance lab or a, a studio, you can't really do until the designers come around and it's not real stuff. But also there was an extraordinary amount of intimacy that came out of those little boxes. It was just amazing. And then the next year, some of them came to an event that I did, and it was the first time they were seeing each other in in real life. It was a really, really moving experience. Oh, fascinating. So I think there is something here that can be intimate. Not always, certainly not, but sometimes. No, that's that's fascinating. I'll tell you another funny story. Because I get emotional because I tell these personal stories, which still affect me. And uh, I was giving a lecture at Stanford. And I was talking uh, something about, you know, growing up poor and my mother and et cetera. And uh, so, you know, my voice cracked. I was shedding a tear. But, you know, I just don't care. <laughs> I just lay by. And of course, that gives permission for everyone to connect with their emotion and they become teary eyed, et cetera. So afterwards, I, I'm, uh, a woman comes up to me and she says, that must have been so horrible for you. And I'm looking at like, what she might? She goes, you must have been so embarrassed and shamed. You know, you were crying. You shed a tear. These, all these people are looking at you. I can only imagine how horrible you felt. And I, yeah, <laughs> like looking at her. And here, now here's the kicker, though. She says, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm a hypnotist. And if you come to me for three sessions, I'll get rid of that for you. <laughs> <laughs> that is, well, she's, that's her entry. She's selling something unbelievable. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you know, it, it just, I found it just profound that this is such a disconnect because what allows for this human connection is sharing your emotions and being authentic. And, uh, uh, and you know, it's funny. I, I had dinner one night with uh, Diane Sawyer, and we were talking about this. She said, Jim, that's your superpower. And I said, yeah, I mean, this is what allows you to connect with people on a very deep level very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love to see the crying banker. <laughs> The crying hedge fund operator. Yes, I yes. You share with me, sometimes you're the crying surgeon, you know, when you have to deliver bad news, right? Well, you know, the, but the thing is, at least for me, and I, it may be unusual, but, you know, I can, and it's not that it's not authentic, but I can immediately connect with someone's emotional state. Like, you know, if they have a loved one who I've done surgery on and is not doing well, or, or even the loved one themselves who's suffering and, you know, I can hold them, I can cry with them, but then I can also turn back into, you know, the um, typical surgeon if if it's necessary to get something done. But I think that transition can be hard for some people. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> I'm not sure if, it, I don't think it's analogous, but certainly it's not playing a part, but I'm sure as an actor, you have to come up with emotions from lived experience, right? It's not something uh, necessarily spontaneous, or maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh, you know, everybody's different and um, everybody's completely different. You know, part of it is, I mean, for me, my work has always been about chasing that which is not me. And I kind of rebelled against the Russian system, the Stanislavski system, with this idea that has informed are acting to this day, it was the end of the uh, 19th century, this idea that every character lives inside of you. That's a very difficult concept for me to buy or that everything that I have to use my own personal emotions to get there, maybe. But on the other hand, with what I uh, have been doing, which is interviewing people, and then if they were emotional, I kind of just follow the kind of score that they've given me. Now, I never know when that's going to tap on the door of my unconscious, do you see? Which is a mystery about acting, of how much of it is us and how much of it is this other thing that could even be in the words on the page, right? So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a mystery. Interesting. Uh, well, when you think about it, isn't it a mystery that someone could sing a, a song 
a love song and, and you start crying. You start crying. Now, it could be because you start to think of a broken love affair, but it could also be that there's something about the actual resonance that gets at you and moves you. Well, you know, it's it's funny you bring that up because there AI has uh, analyzed like scores of music and ha- has found certain harmonies or frequencies that actually have an effect on your emotional state and has created songs, uh, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I'm not sure if that's good because what you'll see is you'll see the next boy or girl band uh, singing songs written by AI. <laughs> well, they probably are already. Yeah. Well, right. uh, actually, that 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 may be uh, may be true. Um, I'm cognizant of your time. Uh, maybe you can share uh, sort of some insights from your own journey uh, to some of our audience that you know, has allowed you to, uh, you know, handle the ups and downs of life. Uh, you know, I think, uh, so many of us, uh, struggle and we look at people who, uh, by some criteria are successful. I'm not talking about the hedge fund managers (laughs) per se, uh, but I'm talking about creative people, people who can sit with their emotions and of course, you know, that takes, uh, you know, some ability to be resilient. And uh, what are the lessons you've learned in terms of being resilient, showing up, even though it's painful? And uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a good question. I mean, it is. First of all, they're the people who say the most important thing is to show up. Right. Um And I've also learned there's a woman in San Francisco who's 104 years old. You should interview her. Ah. And black woman, she was a nurse. Um, And she talked about, you know, don't think about your pain of tomorrow. I mean, also many of us sort of catastrophize what's going to happen to us in our lives. And I think that, you know, when I did have a really tough time when I decided to be an actor, although things did, some things happened rapidly. And I'll never forget, like, having worked really, really hard and going to my first agent. And um, she said to me, you know, I just can't send you out. I, I couldn't possibly send you out, you know, on, on a job. She said, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to antagonize my clients. And I said, I said well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? You know, she said, we don't look like anything. Are you going to be black or white? And there is a way that I guess I collected so many insults to my dignity that that's a sort of bar that is set, right? Um, and I'm sure that even probably had resonance for something that wasn't immediately available to me about my experiences at Garrison Junior High School. And so I think part of it is uh, riding out anything that's devastating. Resilience is, is, is essential, and I think you know better than I that we don't know yet why some people have it and others don't. I don't think my late brother had it to the extent that I do, and I don't know why. I mean, is it genetic? Is resilience, sense of resilience genetic? And I don't have, you know, the sort of competitive spirit of I'll show them. I don't really have that. So when things are bad, they hit, they hit real hard. They hit real hard. But I, and I'll even like allow myself to go fully into the tunnel, you know, because in my business, man, you can get, you get jumped all the time. Well, I, I would say it's, it's hanging over the abyss. That's how you think of it, hanging yeah. over the abyss. Yep. And uh, but you realize that once you do that enough times, you never go fall into the abyss. And I think that's right. sort of in many ways. Well, yes, but keep my fingers crossed. But you know, I, I would say that I've been successful nominally, but you know, I'm a white male, and I am cognizant of the fact that. If I act the part, dress the part, look the part, then I'm accepted. I think for many minorities, uh, 
you know, there's immediate judgment that comes. Oh, oh, I do not, Jim. You disagree. I do not not get the benefit of the doubt. Oh, no. I do not get the benefit of the doubt. I don't. I just don't. So, but one good thing is that because I live in different worlds, right? I have friends, you know, so I'm in the theater, but I have friends in social justice. I have friends who are academics, stuff like that. Um, That things that are absolutely outrageous that can happen in one area, you know, that people are like, that's part of the course. I get to go to a friend in a completely other area who's like, that is absolutely outrageous, and here's why. So it's also good to have like a whole sort of pantry of beautiful human beings who do reality checks for you, or you know, have friends who all call up and say, "I need, I need a, you know, I, I, I need you to be my cheerleader," you know, uh, yes. or something like that. And I'm sure that you you have that too. No, no, I think that's uh, absolutely essential. I think just for your own mental health, but. But getting back to your, you know what I thought you were going to say? You were going to say, Jim, I absolutely disagree with you. And I'm going, wow, that's. A- <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I this whole thing of the benefit of the doubt is on my mind a lot. Right. And I think that's it. Like if you are a person walking down the street and, um, you know, it's like the story you said about the guy who was reaching down for his gun. No benefit of the doubt. But the guy who was standing there with the rifle gets the benefit of the doubt. And to me, that's, that's, listen, I start every single class with this. I say to my students, confidence is overrated. Give doubt a try. Right. And, 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 and so that, that's like for your own self, you don't have to be confident, but I think it's also, you know, use some doubt about the world around you. Well, I think that's a a good thing to end on. Uh, uh, and that's exactly right. Uh, so, well, listen, it's wonderful to reconnect again. I hope our paths cross uh, in the not-too-distant future. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.